In the Grip of Grace, written by Jeanette Marty, read by the author for the Smilo Cancer Hospital and Yale Cancer Center podcast. In the midst of it all. Living for two decades with chronic illness has been bittersweet. It has brought the authenticity of my faithful circle. I was born and raised in New York City. My parents parted ways as they neared the 25th wedding anniversary. By then, my mother had overcome ovarian cancer, but soon she would receive a stage 3 breast cancer diagnosis. The doctors anticipated a poor prognosis even after my mother had a mastectomy and went through the harsh chemotherapy treatments used in the 1980s. Right before these difficult circumstances, my mother had found faith in God. I did not understand how she could be so optimistic in the face of such a poor prognosis, but I could not help but be inspired by her steadfast trust in God. My mother surprised the doctors and went into remission for 12 years. Within the next few years, my first child, Matthew, was born. I married Angel, my childhood friend, and I completed my graphics art and advertising degree. My mother's faith impacted Angel, and he came to faith too. I remained skeptical of spirituality. As a little girl, I hungered for faith, but that hunger wasn't there as an adult. In my last year of college, recurring dreams of a past trauma began to intrude. One day while in my apartment alone, I felt darkness surrounding me. It was intense enough to make me want to leave the apartment. Looking back, I now believe God allowed me to get a glimpse of where I was spiritually, and in doing so, I recognized my need for Him. That encounter shifted the course of my path as I invited God to take the reins. In the following years, I had my second child, Sarah, and together Angel and I began zealously serving in the church. In the midst of our ministry, I felt God stirring me to prepare myself for ordained clergy work. I did not respond immediately. Instead, I questioned and wrestled with the idea. I was a young Hispanic female and did not fit the stereotype. I understood that pastoring was a male-dominated arena that I was attempting to join. Fortunately, my spiritual mentors saw God's call on me before I did, and they arranged for me to attend spiritual conferences where I learned practical leadership skills and connected deeper to God. During one of these conferences in Philadelphia, the preacher said that he had a sense that there was someone in the crowd who had a call to ordain ministry, but did not feel fit. Initially, I didn't think he was talking about me, but then he began to describe my clothing, and he alerted an usher to bring me forward. No doubt God was seeking my attention. The preacher brought me up on stage and confirmed God was indeed calling me. Without knowing me or asking me, he listed the reasons for my hesitation and urged me to trust God. He said that if I did not pursue clergy work now, this call would not be possible. My friend and I were both in tears flabbergasted. I stopped questioning. I knew this was a pivotal point, and once I returned home, I immersed myself in Berean Bible College courses through the Assemblies of God. There weren't a lot of women serving in a pastoral capacity to look up to, and the constant resistance from those who believed it wasn't a woman's role intimidated me. However, after completing the courses, testing, and interviews, I became one of the first few women in the New York City District to receive ministry credentials from the Assemblies of God at that time. Faith is an ongoing journey, and mine was about to be tested. Physical agony can beat the strongest person down, 
Like a kidnapper tortures the body in an attempt to break down the hostage, illness can rip into and break down the sufferer's faith. To everyone's surprise, I had contracted meningitis three times, bacteria as a baby, bacteria again at 21, and then viral meningitis at 33. I was in the hospital treating the inflammation of the brain caused by the last bout of meningitis when I was scheduled to be at a spiritual conference in Toronto. At the hospital, the neurologist had told me the long-term effects were undetermined, and if resolved, it would take a very long time to recover. I left the hospital, and with much prayer, I decided to attend the conference in Toronto in my weakened state with a handful of supportive people, two of which were in the medical field. Doing something like this is not recommended unless one is truly certain that God is leading the way. The first night of the conference, I could barely walk without running into walls and slurring my speech. Writing and fine motor skills were very strained. On the second night, the symptoms and dizziness started to disappear. By the third day, my coordination appeared to be restored. God had healed me. I followed up with the neurologist who was puzzled, but could not deny something out of the norm had occurred to me. An MRI showed brain inflammation was gone something I was told was not medically possible in such a short period of time. Our faith for healing accelerated, motivating us into greater action. The vision for our outreach ministry, which was in the beginning stages, soared. We focused on provision for the homeless, those struggling with addiction, mental illness, women trapped in prostitution, and more. We sought out areas throughout New York City overcrowded with people living in tents and cardboard shelters under byways. We became familiar faces, bringing food, Bibles, supplies, clothing, offering rides to rehabilitation facilities. In the 1990s, New York City shelters and government officials were overwhelmed with the consuming homeless population, so they were eager to join us in our efforts. Eventually, we developed such a heart for the people we were serving, we formed a nonprofit organization with hundreds of volunteers nationwide and donations. We worked with like-minded organizations such as World Vision, Red Cross, and Bowery Mission, with new items donated by major stores like Macy's, JCPenney, Dress Barn, and Walmart. We expanded our community outreaches, back-to-school giveaways, setting up women boutiques, formal dinner banquets, and disaster relief support for home fire survivors. Are those affected by the 9-11 tragedy where some of the services Restores of Hope Ministries provided? We were in the prime of a great work when my mother's breast cancer metastasized to fourth-stage bone cancer with a prognosis of less than a year. Daily, I pleaded with God to give me more time with her, and he granted the request. Tenacity and faith in a trial drug for fourth-stage patients gave us several more years. Not long after my mother's cancer returned, I found out I was pregnant with our third child, Josiah. I immediately developed complications, and by the second month of pregnancy, was put on 24-hour IV care at home. In my fifth month of pregnancy, I started having scattered fevers, which did not initially alarm my maternity doctor. However, fevers persisted at high temps, drastically weakening me. Worried, my husband brought me to the doctor's office, and while I was sitting on the examination table, I went into full-blown convulsions. The last words I heard before everything blacked out was my doctor yelling to call an ambulance. 
I was rushed to the hospital where I woke up in an ICU to doctors rushing around. They were administering medications to stop contractions and early delivery at five months. Steroids and other medications were given to aid the baby's survival, although they insisted he would most likely not survive, and if he did, he would not be a normal functioning child. A late-stage medical abortion was offered, but I declined. They soon discovered the high fevers were due to being septic from two bacterial infections that entered through the pick line, and then a blood clot formed that shot off into my lungs. The chance of survival quoted was less than 50%. After weeks of no mobility laid up in the ICU, I developed double pneumonia. With the surmounting complications, multiple IV antibiotics, blood thinners, lack of oxygen, the doctors couldn't see a good outcome for me or the baby, and they sent a psychologist to prepare us. I was in the hospital for about 40 days before Josiah was born premature at 29.5 weeks. He quickly became the talk of the hospital when he not only survived, but was the feistiest baby in the NICU. Josiah is now a towering 6-foot, 20-year-old who is finishing up Yale EMT schooling with plans to further his medical career. After the traumatic premature birth, I required blood transfusions to replace major blood loss from the blood thinners. The breathing problems, even on oxygen, in large lymph nodes, rashes, and raging fevers persisted. Josiah, on the other hand, was recovering quickly, and I couldn't be happier. Josiah and I were discharged weeks later, and then I proceeded to go in and out of emergency rooms with fevers and convulsions. None of the medications controlled the fevers. Laying on a bed of ice to lower temps was the best option to prevent the convulsions. With a diagnosis for the fevers, the hospital's discharge paperwork repeatedly read fevers of unknown origin. Numerous infectious disease teams were called, then a long trail of specialists from hematology, pulmonary, rheumatology, and oncology performed a battery of tests and biopsies. The emotional toll on my children, husband, and mother while I was gone was visible. Josiah flourished from a transparent, wrinkly preemie to a sweet, healthy-looking baby. However, at three months, he contracted RSV virus, and he was hospitalized for two weeks. I had recently been discharged from the hospital, so I was able to stay with him. I was feeling terribly sick, shivering, fatigued, and crying, while I also had a sense of gratitude as I held my miracle baby. The next year and a half consisted of hospitalizations at a multitude of hospitals. As a result, I was misdiagnosed a few times in New York City. One of the last misdiagnoses was stills a rare autoimmune disorder which required giving myself a daily injection with unpleasant side effects. The many trial treatments that followed would bring more sickness. In November 2005, we moved to Connecticut. In spite of my health challenges, I attempted to remain working in ministry and briefly served in pastoral care at a local Connecticut church until the stronger chemotherapies and sickness incapacitated me. When I moved to Connecticut, Yale New Haven Hospital offered a new fresh set of eyes, and they looked into what no one else had in New York. A Yale team of doctors determined that I did not have stills, but I had an even more rare disease called antisynthetase syndrome. Unfortunately, antisynthetase came with other overlapping autoimmune disorders, connective cancers, and major complications. I was initially relieved to have some answers for the mystery fevers and symptoms, but information on this diagnosis was scarce. 
The constant progression of the disease evolved through the years into multiple diagnoses with their own poor prognosis. Organ involvement requiring transplant, chronic pain, damage from long-term treatments, and chronic infections consistently plague me. Ongoing chemotherapy and immunotherapy have been and continue to be used to achieve periods of remission. Stability is the best outcome with this incurable disease. Any one of the multiple diagnoses can become fatal. I describe it as having a ticking time clock over my head. This makes me view the world through the lenses of uncertainty. This all sounds dreadful, but much good has come from this affliction. It has allowed me to live more aware of the beauty surrounding me. My illness in many ways has taught me how to live and appreciate what is easily taken for granted. I've learned to depend on God so I don't have to rely on my flawed strength. This long medical journey has not only afflicted me, I've watched the emotional strain on my family. It angers me this disease has the power to hurt those I love, and I can't make it stop. Perhaps these struggles are what fuels my will to live and conquer sickness. There's no denying God's abiding presence has covered our family when we needed it most. In preparation for a double lung transplant, we were instructed to finalize end-of-life documents and discuss death, which is never easy to do. Without extended family to depend on, my husband and I knew it was crucial to figure out the details for a future I may not be a part of. He had accompanied me through the medical chaos and impressively supported our children. I took great comfort knowing my husband would be there for our children when I passed. However, in a twinkling of an eye, a sudden tragedy took my husband's life and the security I leaned on. My husband rarely got sick. I'd often joke about barring his strong immune system. He even went for a run the day before feeling unwell. When his symptoms escalated, he went to urgent care where he was diagnosed with a stomach bug. In protection of me, he stood far away from me. My husband worsened, so our daughter took him to the hospital where he was immediately placed in cardiac ICU on life support. Later that night, the nurses assured me he was stable and I should go home to refresh. While home picking up extra oxygen and resting, I received an urgent call to return to the hospital. As my children and I rushed through the glass doors to ICU, we were met by a doctor. Straight ahead, I could see a room full of medical staff on top of my husband. The doctor who met us at the door said, I'm so sorry, Mrs. Marty. Your husband did not make it. We have tried to resuscitate him 12 times. He was a young, healthy man, and we do not know exactly what happened. We will need to do an autopsy. I could feel my legs buckle as shock took over and then denial. I kept asking to see my husband, and eventually I was allowed in the room. I could not process the reality and started to beg him not to leave us. Several hours later, everyone was gently telling me it was time to leave, but I couldn't bring myself to. Somehow leaving would make his death more real. Suddenly, I had a vision of Angel reunited in heaven with his departed mother, my parents, and others. I then realized he was no longer with us, and I was able to leave. Why was I left behind and the healthy parent gone? This is still a burning question that defies all reasoning. In my despair, nothing will ever make sense, except that God remains the same, even when everything under the ground I walk on is shaken. Through the challenges with my health, finances, and grief, there is a soothing comfort in God. I can't explain it. Through the challenges with my health, finances, and grief, there is a soothing comfort in God. I can't explain it, but I am sure of His validity. Not because of a religious belief, 
but because of tangible experiences I have had, which reveal that I am in the grip of God's grace. Courage comes when I feel least brave, when my symptoms, blood work, and scans steal my hope. Faith stirs out of nowhere. Where I place my focus is key. I must be intentional in nurturing my faith. My days as a widow, patient, and single parent are grueling. COVID isolation has further added insult to injury. My children must PCR test weekly to be near me and constantly fear bringing me a life-threatening virus or bacteria. The delays in my treatment during COVID have caused medical issues which were dormant to resurface. I'm constantly fatigued and any activity is physically taxing. I now carry the added burdens of my husband's responsibilities, which among other things like fixing a leaking faucet include advocating for my health care. I have spent hours, weeks, and months appealing denials for medications and procedures I desperately need. A lot of people assume the chronically ill rest easy and have caretakers to handle their every need. This may be true for some, but it's not my experience. My children exhaust themselves trying to support me, but all the demands are hard to keep up with. I must be careful not to focus on all this or I lose sight of the good and I don't remember the random acts of kindness from strangers and faithful ones alike or the many skills I've learned as a long-term patient or the fire that sparks when I can help another patient navigate the healthcare system or how amazed my husband would be at the list of home repairs I've tackled since he went to heaven or how losing him caused us to hug tighter and love harder. Darkness prevents us from seeing the light but we overcome in choosing to believe God is greater than our fears, prognosis, and tragedy. As you read this, may God's peace, which surpasses all understanding, be upon you. In the darkest times, the light of God goes beyond what you can't see past. We hope you have enjoyed this story. Please subscribe to hear more stories and interviews and tell us how this story has impacted you by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The production of this story episode was made possible by the generous support of the Yale Cancer Center, Yale New Haven Hospital, and the Yale Palliative Care Program, and Yale New Haven Department of Spiritual Care.